Lord God, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to worship together this morning and to be nourished by your word and by your sacrament. I ask that you bless this time together that through my words, your word would be preached clearly. Lord, that my thoughts would be your thoughts, my words, your words, and that you would soften our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be back here at Lakewood with you all. Uh, you guys are part of something great, not just the Anglican Church in North America, but what God is doing through this mission in Lakewood, Ohio. So that's something to be proud of and to praise God for. We're going to go ahead and get started. They said I had an hour time cap for my sermon, so here we go. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 10, verses 1 through 20. Luke 10, verses 1 through 20. In Tolkien's epic saga, The Lord of the Rings, we are introduced to an unlikely band of heroes on a mission to get rid of a small gold ring, which has been the catalyst of the troubles of their time and the return of a great evil, Sauron. And at the center of the story is perhaps the most unlikely adventurer of them all, Frodo, a small creature with unusually large feet called a hobbit. Early in the book, The Fellowship of the Rings, Gandalf, a great wizard and friend of Frodo, explains to him the history of the ring. He explains to him what has happened and what must now take place in order to make things right. In response to this tragic tale and to this daunting task that he has ahead of him, the following exchange takes place. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with what is given us. Like Frodo, we don't get to choose what life or what situation or what time we are born into. Our only choice is, what do we do with what we have been given? And that is a central theme of our passage this morning. Just as a bit of a refresher, last week when Father Gene was visiting you, he preached out of Luke 9, verses 51 through 62. And we are introduced to three would-be disciples who were forced to count the cost of their discipleship. Well, this week, in our passage, we see discipleship in action. We learn about this call that is for all Christians and understand that each of us has this call. Discipleship is the great adventure and the great purpose of each of our ordinary lives. And so we find in this passage that we are all called to go that this call is urgent and that there is joy in the call. Look with me at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Well, this two by two 
journey shows us a requirement to validate a claim, to prove that something is true. This is a prophetic mission that Jesus is sending these disciples on that is rooted in an objective reality, an objective truth that is the gospel. And who are these disciples? Who are these people sent on a mission? Well, we don't know. We don't know their names. We don't even know their stories. But we know they aren't the 12 apostles. As far as we know, these are 72 ordinary people like you and me who are just simply obeying Jesus. They have counted the cost of discipleship and decided it was worth it to go and do what Jesus had called them to do. Like the apostles, they likely came from all sorts of trades, perhaps fishermen, tent makers, tax collectors, doctors, lawyers, engineers, graphic designers, right? These are the yous and the me's of the world obeying a common call. And they responded to Jesus' gospel not only by believing, not only an intellectual assent, but by following him, by taking part in Jesus' kingdom mission. Discipleship, this act of proclaiming the gospel and loving our neighbors and reaching out to those around us, is not reserved for ordained ministers or those in formal ministry settings. We are all called to go. These 72 set an example for us to obey the common call to discipleship. Let's look at verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Into his harvest. As disciples of Jesus, we don't have our own ministries. Our lives are not ours to do whatever we please with them. Whether our lives are primarily around our work, some sort of employment, or your vocation is that as a stay-at-home parent, or you wear a funny collar or a robe on Sundays. It's not our lives. It's not our ministry. Our life is not our own. It belongs to the Lord. And we're each called to be a disciple and take ownership of what God has given us to live a sent life following Jesus' call, not making up our own. Verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs in the midst of wolves. In a turbulent and aggressive culture, God's disciples are called to be peaceful. And this alone makes our lives countercultural. In a world where everyone is outraged by everything and it's mainstream to be nasty, Christians are called to be living lives that are characterized by love, and it's not always reciprocated, is it? Following Jesus, daring to go where he sends us to go, and proclaiming his gospel message to our co-workers, to our friends and our families, often leads us into hostile territory. If we've counted this cost of discipleship, we may have already come to experience that this discipleship comes at great cost, and it could cost us everything. And if only the wolves were always obvious, right? Sometimes it's like Looney Tunes where they're dressed up like the sheepdog and getting into the middle of the den 
of sheep. And you only find out once it's too late. And perhaps there is no American Christian context in our day that understands this quite like the Anglican Church in North America. We know that sometimes these wolves are among us. Sometimes they're the people that were closest to us. And so it makes this cost feel even higher. This cost of discipleship, of taking Jesus at his word, even in the United States, even sometimes in the institutional, visible church, can be very costly. It can cost us salaries, properties, pensions, friendships. Can could be a source of great pain, which just goes to show us in our time that the time of country club Christianity in our country is coming to an end. We have to choose if we are all in to this life of discipleship or if we are not. But we are fastly approaching a day where there will be no in-between in the church. Verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. There's a sense of urgency here, right? In the Army, and a little background on me, I'm in the Army. I'm in the chaplain candidate program right now. But for some context to this, in the, in the Army, when you're preparing for a raid, you don't take everything with you. They give you all this stuff, these huge backpacks, these rifles, a lot of ammunition, all this armor. But if you are going to do a last-minute raid, you travel light. When that's in the context of parachuting, we call it going Hollywood. And Jesus is telling these messengers, go Hollywood style. There is no time to waste. The call is urgent. It's urgent for them, and it's urgent for us. We don't know what tomorrow brings. All we have is to decide what to do with the time that is given us. The call is urgent. So we need to consider what is it we are living for. If Jesus is who he says he is, if this message is what we believe it is, there is no time to lose chasing status or worldly accolades. We ought to be living out our discipleship every moment of our lives. Continue with me to verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So there's an instruction here for how these 72 engage their gospel conversations and how we ought to engage our gospel conversations by being a peaceful and a loving people. This is what it looks like to bring the message of Jesus' kingdom in our culture, right? To bring peace. We live in an outrage culture. All you have to do is scroll through social media for only a second, and you'll find that somebody is mad about something every day. But whether their outrage is justified or not, it seems we're always looking for something to infuriate us, something to be mad at. So in a world fueled by this fury, let's be a culture which follows the instruction of the Apostle Paul and live at peace with everyone, if possible. Verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. 
Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. I grew up in a Baptist household, and it seems like in Baptist culture, the words fellowship and potluck are interchangeable. If there's a good conversation, you can be sure there's good food around it. Good conversation always flows over a good meal, right? It's easy to be in good spirits when you're eating all you can eat, and you can keep coming up for more. It's even better when you didn't have to prepare it. It's great. Consider what happens over this good meal. And in verse 7 and 8, or why someone would invite you to stay with them at all. It's relationship. And gospel travels well over the bridge of relationships. Picture the gospel conversations we've had with our friends. Can you imagine what it might be like if you're at a restaurant and your waiter brings you your water and you take a sip and you say, that's nice, but I got some of that living water. What do you know about that? It's not going to go as well as a conversation with one of your close friends. Verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus has given these normal people authority to heal in his name, much like he did to his apostles. But this greatest miracle here is not the ability to heal the sick. You know, there are examples of miracles happening, not due to the Holy Spirit, but due to paganism, due to demonic possession. The greatest miracle here is the message that the kingdom of God has come near to you. God is not far away. He's here with us. This is the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us Christians. The kingdom of God is near to us too. Verse 10, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is an objective reality. It is real whether we want it to be or not. You know, we live in this post-secular society that issues the idea of absolute truth. You live your truth. That's the mantra of today's America. It might be true for you, but it's not true for me. But the reality is, what we believe doesn't change this objective reality. Jesus is the Christ. His kingdom is real, whether we believe it or not, whether we were the sons of peace that welcomed his messengers, or we are the towns that reject him and his message, the kingdom is real. We read here, you might not believe it. You may not repent and follow Jesus. But nevertheless, his kingdom is near. And one day, whether in fear or in joy, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Continue with me to verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, 
They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Sodom was brought down due to moral pollution and Tyre and Sidon for their commercial corruption. And yet Jesus is saying they will have a more bearable judgment than Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Think of these like our nice suburban towns. They have their collective lives together. It's a, friend, a family-friendly neighborhood. They have the best schools in the area. When we think of bad, we think of the places like Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, not like these comfortable, collectively successful towns. But when we start comparing ourselves to the Sodoms, to the Tyres, to the Sidons of the world, and say, I don't have my life together, but at least I'm not like Sodom. What a loser. Then we lose track of this gospel message altogether, that there is none righteous, not even one. And that's not how the world thinks. The world thinks if there's a God, he'll let me into heaven. Because I've been a good person compared to most people. And our Midwestern suburban lifestyle tends to be a lot more like Coors and Bethsaida, Capernaum. A lot more like that than like Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. And the reality is that we can have our collective lives together. We can have good jobs. We can have a healthy family. We can live a morally upright life and still be utterly depraved because even those people we call bad might have repented when they heard the gospel. But if we've heard the gospel with our own ears and reject it, then what is all this stuff that defines us anyway? What good is it without that saving faith? Verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Rejection of the message is a rejection of God himself. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then there is only one way to be in a right relationship with God, and that's by repenting and believing the gospel. To say no to this message has eternal consequences. Being good is not enough if we reject the gospel, because rejecting the gospel is rejecting God himself. We can have this beautiful liturgy memorized. We can be bastions of virtue and grace in this society in terms of our lives and our behavior, but still be in outright rebellion against God if we do not repent and believe and follow Jesus if we are not his disciples ourselves. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The incarnation is the most dynamic operation against evil that was ever fought. Look at what Jesus said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so this discipleship might be risky. Following this example that we see from the 72 might come at a high cost. 
but the battle is already won. And that's the ultimate spoiler alert of the gospel. Jesus won. The devil lost. The powers and principalities, the devil and his angels, they're on borrowed time. They have no hope to win the war, but they would love to take as many of us as possible with them when they lose. So let's boldly proclaim the gospel. Let's build meaningful relationships with our neighbors and with one another that show that the kingdom of God is at hand. Whether, even though in this world there's hopelessness and there's isolation, there is hope in the gospel of Jesus. And that is a message unlike anything the world can bring to anyone in our streets, in our offices, and in our homes. Verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's joy in this promise. Whether we experience persecution and failure, and there aren't fruits that we see in our discipleship, or even if our discipleship goes well, and it looks like the 72, when they went ahead of Jesus and proclaimed his message and came back and said, this is going great. Either way, it isn't the authority or the success, but the promise of eternal life in the presence of the triune God that should get us excited. Discipleship is the great adventure. It's the great purpose of our ordinary, everyday lives. We're called to proclaim this message of hope, Jesus' message, that the kingdom is near. And that's something to get excited about, right? Even in the mundane, there is something to be excited about. There is a message of hope unlike anything else we could ever hear or see. So where do we begin? Well, a big mission, like the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples, to go ahead of Jesus in our towns and proclaim a message that maybe somebody hasn't heard before, to proclaim this message of the kingdom starts small. And it starts right here at home. It starts in our churches. If we're not in good relationship with one another as the body of Christ, it'll be hard to start good relationships with those who are outside of the body of Christ. See, this is our Frodo moment, right? What will we do in response to this gospel, to this call to discipleship? What will we do with our time? Well, if we're ready to follow Jesus like the 72, we can start simply and small. Let's be in community together. Invest in one another and keep one another accountable on this mission. This is how we live our ordinary life on the extraordinary mission of following Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have
in your gospel. We ask that through it you would soften our hearts and motivate us to proclaim your truth to our friends and our families, to bring you all the honor and the glory in all that we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.